Thanks there, Johnny, for that lovely drum roll intro to the Hipstorians. And welcome, listeners, to another episode of your favourite history podcast. Now, this evening, myself, Neil Featherston Hall, and my co-Hipstorian, Derek Mulligan, will be talking to Roger Moorhouse. And this, Roger has a great pedigree and background to writing all about the Second World War. He's written his first book, I think, Killing Hitler in 2006, was translated into loads of different languages. And then he'd written about Berlin at war, life and death in Hitler's capital, 1939 to 45. And this, this was a really gripping read. But tonight we're going to be talking to him about a part of the Second World War, which is not widely discussed or known of in this part of Europe. And that's the invasion and the absolute brutal repression and destruction of Poland in September 1939 between the Germans on one side and the Soviets on the other side. Obviously, it fell between the phony war and the proper, to use one use a better word, of the beginning of the Second World War. And it's absolutely crucial to our understanding of what unfolded in the Second World War and crucial in understanding of how we live in Europe today. Check it out. Hi, Roger. Roger Morehouse. You're very welcome to The Historians. Hello. Thanks for having me. Good evening, Roger. We're just admiring, unfortunately, the listeners won't be able to see, but you've got a pretty impressive bookshelf there behind you. Yeah, I, I, I work in my shed, basically. I've got a fairly large shed. I call it a shed. More like a Wendy mm. house, I suppose. And yeah, and sort of books all around, brown three sides. And yeah, it's quite cosy. It gets a bit chilly in the winter. It gets me out of the house anyway. So I, I, I still have a commute. <laughs> yeah, I have yeah. a commute about, about 20 feet across the garden. Mm. The man cave, the man cave. Yeah, we don't want to alienate half our listeners, perhaps, but you know, we all aspire to a. <laughs> actually, to, a make, to make it even more like a man cave, given it's winter now, I've actually I have to put my motorbike in the cave as well, so I can literally yeah. reach out where I am and touch my bike as well. So, so we can turn yeah. the engine on for heat. It's anyway. a proper man cave. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. <laughs> we were just discussing your book, Roger, just before you came on air. As it were, I, I read it a while ago, so it's been out yeah. a while, right? Yeah, it came out for the what must it have been 80th anniversary. It came out in 2019 mm-hmm. um, for the 80th anniversary of the events that it describes, so September 39. September 39. That's right. I remember reading it, and myself and Derek are died in the wool history nerds. I think we've yeah. read everything and know everything about everything. And this is a period. <laughs> Even this. <laughs> we're, always, we're always ready to be stood correct. And I think that's, this is where you're going to help us along. Because this period, the phony war, perhaps yeah. it, was, it was known in Britain. And Derek, you were saying it was known yeah, in France. The phony war. The phony war. To, to British ears, and perhaps this side of, the, of Europe, not a lot happened. Yeah. That, that's... that's that's, you know, that's we're, the we're basically the story. Yeah, yeah, we're waiting for it all to kick off in in yeah. May 1940 when it when the real stuff starts to happen. But yeah. that's not the case, is it? No, not at all. And and this is kind of a little bit what I was tilting against with the book. I mean, my my sort of um, academic background is very much in Central European history, so I was kind of very aware that there was a story there that that was kind of routinely untold in the Western narrative, right? And the Western narrative, as you say, is basically one of the, the British and the French going to war, um, declaring war on Germany on the 3rd of September in response to that German invasion of Poland, which is on the 1st. And then although, although there's, you know, there are some quite major events in the war at sea, you've got things like the Athenia is, is sunk, um, I think, on the 3rd or the 4th of September off the top of my head. You've got the sinking of the 
the Royal Oak is is sunk up at Scarpa Flow and stuff. So there's a there's a lot going on, on in the War and Sea at this time. But then as you, you're right, the, the War on Land doesn't really happen until obviously invasion of France in May 1940. So there is this sort of, as you say, the Drôle de Guerre in French, the, the, the phony war where not much is happening. But that is a very, very Western-centric view because they're not, a hell of a lot is happening if, you, if you're Polish, right? A hell of a lot is happening in that, in that theatre. You've got the German invasion from the 1st of September, which is across all of Poland's Western and Northern frontiers. I mean, if, you, if, you, if, you, and if our listeners can imagine the... Um, the map of pre-war Poland, which is actually quite different from how it looks today, but it's basically already, even before a shot's fired, it's kind of Poland is in a, is in a, a German pincer before even a shot, shot has been fired. So it's invaded from all sides. And the 17th of September is invaded by the Soviets as well. And it's basically fighting for its life. And it's a, it ends up as a fourth partition. The, the hostilities, formal hostilities end on the 6th of October. And then Poland is completely partitioned, occupied, destroyed. It's a, it's a fourth partition, which is referencing back to the partitions of the 18th century when Poland disappeared from the map the first time. So there's a hell of a lot going on in Poland at this time. And, and in our narrative, it's just kind of twiddling our thumbs, waiting for the Germans to come west. So that I realise, known, known for years, that there's a, a huge narrative there that just routinely gets untold. And it, at best, it probably gets a page or a couple of paragraphs in these sort of standard histories of World War II. And it needs more than that. So I wanted to fill that gap. Why, why do you think that, that gap in our history? Is it because of that Western view or is it because, I mean, why? Well, it's such a key part of the Second World War. Like there's a lot of... Yeah, I think, I mean, that Poland has this, I think, unfortunate problem in a way that I think its history routinely falls through the cracks. It's actually a really, really interesting country. It's a really interesting history that it has. It's, it's, it's brutal, I mean, its history, you know, stuck between... Germany in the modern period, Germany and the Soviet Union or Germany and Russia, and going back stuck between Prussia and Russia, both of whom have designs on Polish territory and always have. Frontiers in that part of the world are very, very sort of fluctuating things. It's not like the, they don't have, don't have the benefit of a channel or they don't have the benefit of a river Rhine or ever a sort of natural frontier. So the, the, if you look at those, you can see on it on the um, on the web, you can see those sort of those maps that change every every 10 years or whatever it is and you can see the development of European countries just run one of those and look at Eastern Europe and you'll see the way Poland in the in the uh, 17th century before it, it's consumed in those partitions in the in the following century Poland is the largest country in Europe right stretches from the Baltic to the Black Sea mm-hmm. and that's because it's sort of allowed to expand by the comparative weakness of its neighbours and then as soon as the neighbours assert themselves then it shrinks again it shrinks to nothing at the mm. end of 1795 it is wiped off the map again so these are sort of these vicissitudes in terms of how how countries sort of wax and wane and all of that you just don't see that in western europe really at all so it's 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 mm. a completely different story and that to me, I th- I've always found that fascinating. I, I studied that univ- at university. I studied Central European history. So I've always kind of had a, had a sort of an eye on this stuff. I've always found it fascinating. But it's just not really understood in the Western narrative, particularly mm. in World War II, right? Mm. So we, we all have, if you look at World War II, which is probably one of the best known sort of narratives that everyone stops on on the street, they'll know, they'll, they'll know Churchill's name, they'll know Hitler's name, whatever. 
So it's probably the best known narrative that we have, but every country has its own story, right? And we concentrate naturally on our own story. So for Brits, we talk about endlessly, to give an example, we talk about the Dambusters raid, mm. which is all right. It's, it's interesting. It's a te it's technologically it's fascinating, but it doesn't change the the result of the war. It really doesn't but change anything at all. To it the thing. It's about the human story, isn't it? We just it is. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is interesting in that spent in that respect in terms of the, the technological, the, the, the brilliance of the flyers and actually doing it. It's not so brilliant for the, the, the thousands of forced laborers that are basically drowned by the by the Thames raid. It doesn't have much effect on German industry, to be fair, because they, they put it back on its feet very quickly. And yeah, it's something that we, as Brits, I'm talking, you know, we, it's sort of front centre in our narrative. No one else gives two hoots about the Thames raid because it is actually pretty irrelevant. Right. So we all have our sort of peculiarities and we all have our own particular par parochial interests in this. Uh, in this story but Poland just slips through the net every single time and, and you bear in mind it's the first campaign of the war this is this is the mm. invasion that that makes World War II in Europe happen right mm. so it's a yeah. major omission that we don't really understand what happened in that campaign that would be my argument and going further on Poland is absolutely the sort of cockpit of all of the all of the really bad stuff that's happening the, the Western European war is chivalrous in compared to what's in comparison to what's going on in the Eastern Front, and well, Poland's where the learned learned their trade as well. That's where they started. To yeah, absolutely. It's where the, that Germany goes into Poland in '39, as you said, with the Einsatzgruppe and doing all of their hideous things, but way beyond that. There's this program of basically trying to de decapitate Polish society. The Soviets do exactly the same thing. Incident: the, the Germans are working on a sort of a race basis. They're importing race war. The Soviets are bringing class war to, to Eastern Poland as well, doing exactly the same thing, decapitating Polish society. So the brutality is just astonishing. And that's one another thing I wanted to try, get, try and get across in the book. So we really need to understand this a little bit better, I suggest. And where better than start, start reading on that book? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, and certainly with the with, you know, part of the, this story as well that you, you put forward is the idea of Germany, the German nation, wasn't ready for war. They didn't want war. Oh, sorry, not not ready for it, but didn't want war. And that Hitler had to do an awful lot, or the Nazi Party had to do a lot to actually bring them into into line, and so that they had to accept accept this thing. And part of that, I mean, if we want to get into then the micro from the German side, certainly was the false flag or the so-called false mm. flag operations. And there's a number of kind of standout ones. Obviously, there's one at Gleiwitz, which is the, mm. the best known one. I think there's a myth you expose on that one. You can you can tell us about that. And then there was yeah. the, the the brutal one in, inside Polish territory in the south in Tarnow when they killed 24 people, isn't it? Yeah. In a railway station. Yeah, if you, may, if you could tell the listeners a little bit about those two, two incidents and yeah, this... Hitler brought the, the German people with him. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I again, I mean, everyone knows, well, I think a lot of people know about the Gleiwitz incident. But when you look into it, you realise that pretty much everything that's written about the Gleiwitz incident is wrong. It very often gets conflated with other, not necessarily Tarnoff, which you just mentioned, which was a bomb attack on a train station. But there are other incidents on the same night as the Gleiwitz incident. There's one at a place called a Hawk Linden, for example, on that frontier. The Germans have basically been agitating on that German-Polish frontier all summer, all summer through in 1939. They're basically kind of creating these sort of border incidents. And a lot of, a lot of it was, was they would find sort of isolated farmhouses 
it might be a mile from the frontier or whatever. And they basically, the, 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 the inhabitants on the German side, the Germans would be shipped out and then they basically carry out an arson attack on this farmhouse. And then it would be splashed all over the news. You know, the Pol Polish bandits have raided another, yet another farmhouse, blah, blah, blah. So they're kind of they're upping the ante all the time, putting pressure on Poland, essentially trying to destabilize Poland to provoke it into some sort of action, which it doesn't do. Because of course, the, what the Germans are trying to do is to create another Munich, effectively, right? Mm -hmm. So Munich of the previous year had all of that saber rattling, the British and the French, incidentally, also had played a shameful role in, in convincing the Czechs to give in to the Germans. To be fair, the Czechs were, were always kind of minded to give in, but the British, you know, British and French didn't help with that. They, they sort of, uh, this, this was the, the high watermark of appeasement, of course. But the following year, the Poles were never minded to give in to the, to the Germans anyway, because that's partly their national character. It's partly the fact that partly the result of their history. They just restored their independence in 1918 after 123 years, not on the map of Europe. So they were never going to give that up lightly. They just weren't. And of course, the British and the French, have, they've learned from the previous year and they're much more robust in, in, in at least pretending to resist Nazi Germany or, or at least using the rhetoric of resistance. So the, the Poles were never going to give in. So what you've got in that summer is the Germans basically trying to put pressure on them to carry out these sort of terror attacks, as we've described them now, to destabilise, provoke some sort of reaction, whatever it is. And that goes on all through that summer. And actually, looking in the German archive, you can find the files which have all these sort of hand-drawn hand maps of which buildings they're going to target next. I mean, no, no one's ever written about this stuff before. It's fascinating to look at. And then this all culminates, as you said, Tarnoff is, is I think, on the 26th of August, it's just before, which is a pure terror attack. Just a, a chap left a bomb in the, in the waiting room of a, of a train station and it exploded, you know, killing, as you said, I think 24 people, one of whom was a three-year-old girl. It's horrible. It's an absolutely horrible thing, purely to instill terror in the Poles and provoke some sort of reaction. Rather like, you know, it's very similar tactics to what Putin does now, that sort of terror attacks. And then nobody knows who did it. It's kind of, oh, well, it's a mystery. Well, well, this could be a phony war we're living in right now, then, eh? Yeah, I mean, the, the similarities, so they are there, unfortunately. And then you, you jump forward to the 31st of August, which is the night before the, the invasion. As we said at the top, the German people, are, Hitler's madly popular at this point, right? I wrote an earlier book called Berlin at War where I talk about the outbreak of war and how it really was greeted with astonishment by the German people. They, they certainly weren't celebrating like they were in, in 1914. Very sombre mood. And the reason being this, it was that Germany had lost nearly two million people in the First World War. And it, and it brought all of that sort of, all of the horrors and the political instability and economic chaos that it, that it brought with it in the 1920s. Everyone had a memory of that and they didn't want to go back there. So they wanted Hitler to kind of rebuild Germany and restore German honor and all of that stuff that, that he told them he was going to do. But they wanted it done peacefully, right? They didn't want to go to war with, with their neighbors again, essentially. So what Hitler had to do was to sell this, this invasion as a defensive operation to get, it, to get it past public opinion. And he does that by essentially setting up both Gleiwitz and Hawk Linden, and there's another one, which the name of which escapes me. So there are three attacks that night, which are basically all false flags. So Hawk Linden's interesting because they get Polish-speaking Germans dressed as 
as poles. They get them to raid a sort of customs post on the frontier in the middle of the night, fire a few, fire a few rounds into the air, exclaim a, in a, a few Polish words and a few Polish swear words, and then disappear again. And left a few bodies of, of you know, concentration camp inmates there to, to make it look realistic. That's, that's an interesting one. But Gleiwitz is, is supposed to be the crowning glory of this whole thing. Because they, they set up Gleiwitz, it's, it's a radio station in the town of Gleiwitz, which is about sort of five kilometres from the frontier on the German side. And they raid this SS squad of about eight people, raid this radio station. And they were supposed to broadcast a sort of incendiary message in Polish, basically saying, now here we are, we've taken this, this radio station, we're waiting for, for the army to come and, and relieve us, and we're, and we're avenging ourselves on the, on the bastard Germans. That's essentially what they're saying. None of that comes through because it's just lost in a, you know, it all goes wrong. It gets, most of the message gets lost in a, in a, um, a cloud of static. But it's trumpeted in the, in the German press that the Poles had done this. Right? And when Hitler stands up in front of the Reichstag the following morning to essentially declare war, but he doesn't use the word, word war, a bit like Putin now, mm-hmm. he doesn't use the word war. He says, we are fighting back against these people. And he's referencing Gleiwitz, right? So it's, it's a crucial part of the sell to the German people to say, look, these people have attacked us. We have to defend ourselves. So it's actually quite a crucial part of the, of the whole operation. And again, as I said, said before, it, it's, it's routinely misdescribed. So it gets lumped in with this Hawk Linden exercise where they did have some bodies of, of concentration campaign mates and so on. At uh, Gleiwitz, there's only one body. This is this chap called Franciszek Honiok who was a Polish agitator, ethnic Pole, who lived in Germany, in Upper Silesia. And he was basically brought in, drugged, was shot at the scene and was left there to die. So there's only one body. There were no, they weren't in Polish uniforms, for example. That always gets, that's always wrong when the way people describe that. So there's only one body and they weren't in Polish uniforms. So it's quite fun sometimes to sort of pull this stuff apart and actually see what what really happened. Because if you repeat something often enough, people assume it's true and very often it's not. And that's a good example. And that's why it's important to revisit history. People say, we've heard so much about this particular battle or this particular incident, this particular, why go back to it? I think it needs to be repeatedly go back all the time. And this is how you, you find out new stuff. Another myth you might help us out here with Rogers. When I was a kid, right? I was really already into history when I was like, yay, hi. I, I was given this, this matchbox Panzer One yeah. model kit. And I remember the cover up to this day because it was a picture of it. You, you probably know it's a light German tank. It wasn't that particularly well armed. But I think they were used probably for the first time in, in action in, yeah. when they went over the border into Poland. But intriguingly, they did this really deadly artwork on the front of the tank firing away and in the background it looks like a cavalry man mm-hmm. charging at this tank mm-hmm. and that always intrigued me as a kid and I asked about this my my dad my uncle were great they told me that it was one of the few times this 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 the heroic Polish cavalry harking back to Napoleonic days charged yeah. the German steel monsters with their lances yeah and it fascinated me as a kid, Roger. I was like, oh my yeah. gosh, so brave or idiotic. I couldn't think oh, yeah, quite or figure it out. Yeah. As an eight-year-old, effectively, simple question is, is that true or is this part of the mythology? Unfortunately, that is, I mean, you've described it in the most wonderful way, almost a romantic <laughs> way, I'd have to say. Um, but uh, 
Uh, no, it's not true. It's a, oh, it's don't shout at my eight-year-old. It's a creation. <laughs> it's this a is creation where harsh reality kicks in, folks. This is where you're confronted with the truth, and you've got to just grow up. Yeah, afraid so. Your eight-year-old self. Yeah, I know. Right. I'm sorry about this. You'll you'll have a sleepless night now after this. Oh, I, I, um, that's a shame. No, see, both sides. This is this is the this is basically Goebbels's propaganda machine, right? Which was to present German forces as being supremely dominant technologically superior which they were let's not pretend but they they absolutely were technologically superior militarily superior by extension actually racially superior that's the sort of that's the, the unspoken bit of the equation this ha- this sort of happened but it, but not in the way as described now the myth is of course as you perfectly described it there was that the poles foolish foolish or romantic or whichever take take your pick charged German tanks with their lances on, on horseback in 1939, right? Doesn't happen. Like that, it doesn't happen. So what happens in a couple of instances is that Polish cavalry, which was very effective, by the way, they generally, are just as a quick aside on Polish cavalry, they, they, they fought, actually, they're not, they're not still doing cavalry charges like they used to do it in the, in the Napoleonic Wars. They are, they are fighting as basically highly mobile infantry. So they, they use the horses for mobility. They have anti-tank rifles. They have small artillery pieces that are towed behind the, you know, on a limber behind the horses. So they use horses for, mo- for speed and mobility, get into, into place. The horses are taken to the rear and they fight as, as highly mobile and very bit effective infantry. They can still do a cavalry charge if they have to, right? So it's still in the locker. And they do that in a number of occasions where they're faced with uh, German infantry. And cavalry against infantry is just as terrifying in 1939 as it would have been in 1813, right, for the infantry. So there's a couple of occasions where the, where the Poles actually charge German infantry with great effect and then get countercharged or counterattacked by, by armour, right? So that the armour column kind of finally lumbers into view and engages the cavalry who think they've won, they've won the engagement engages them with predictable results so that happens on a couple of occasions but where this is another thing because I I wanted to track where this story came from and you can track it down to the one big engagement within within the September campaign it's called the Battle of the Bzura and this lasts for about two weeks near enough 10 days to two weeks it's a very long engagement has various phases and one of those engagements within that battle was there was, a, there was a, an Italian uh, war correspondent whose name was Indro Montanelli, and he was taken to view the aftermath of one of these engagements. And you can imagine horses, men, just a mess of, 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 of blood and corpses. And he was told that this, is, this, was, this was the aftermath of one of these engagements. So he goes away and he writes his piece, which, are, which then appears in the Italian newspapers, which basically says that these gallant Poles are being mown down by, by German armour. And it's a, the, the piece is beautifully written. I mean, it's more, it's more of the product of his imagination than what he actually saw, because he didn't see the battle. He only saw the aftermath. And he wrote this wonderfully lyrical scene of the cavalry kind of charging in and the, and the, and the snorting horses and the, and the bullets flying. And all. It's completely the product of his imagination. But crucially, this is then picked up by the Germans who, who then can say, well, here's an, here's an independent source. This is an independent source saying that these foolish Poles are charging us on horseback with predictable results. 
aren't they daft? Aren't they primitive? Aren't they inferior to us? That's the narrative that they push. And this becomes such a big narrative. You can, you can see it at the time in, in German propaganda output, you know, done for the Hitler Youth, for example. There was a film made about the September campaign, which features this as well. And, it, and it's so successful as a narrative that it's, like you said, it was when we were growing up, it was still, it was still current. So, and it still goes around today. If you ask anyone, what do they know about the September campaign in 1939? They'll say that because it's the only mm. thing anyone thinks they know. But it's, it's, a, it's a real sort of twist of the truth. The truth is actually much more complex, much more interesting, actually. But that's always the case. But this is, this is one of those, it's a good example of Goebbels' propaganda living on 80 years after, after the, uh, the event. It's crazy. Well, I find your, your, your explanation will, will ease my, my broken childhood imagery there, <laughs> Roger. But it brings us on to my, my next question I was talking to Derek about before we came on, is that, again, part of not the mythology, but the narrative is that Germany overran Poland, swept them aside, Russians come in halfway through it, stabbed them in the back, done, right? And divided up the spoils between them. Mm. But that wasn't the case. I, I understand that in some cases that the Poles really gave the Germans a few bloody noses in places that sent them reeling back and even scared off Hitler, or not scared him off, but made him almost kind of hesitate then because he thought his, his, this metal army that he built up wasn't, as as powerful and as destructive as he thought it was is, is that correct i think i mean there are a couple of moments the bazura is one example where as i mentioned before the battle of the Zura is one of those moments where the poles i think score very well initially they 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 attack the germans in the flanks so the german main column which is coming up from the southwest from from silesia and up towards warsaw they basically attack down from the north and attack that that column in the flank and make tremendous gains, temporary, of course, because the Germans counterattack and they put some, the spearhead units are all at Warsaw, so they have to be withdrawn and then to, to counter this attack at the Zura. So that is one example where they did make at least brief gains. What, what characterizes, I think, most of the Polish fighting at this point, most of the Polish, what we might call Polish successes, are where they actually hold the Germans up and then carry out an order, orderly withdrawal. And they can usually do that in places where they have some prepared defences. And unfortunately, those places are all too few. I mean, anyone that knows the terrain of Poland, you'll know that it's pretty flat. And even the rivers are not, not brilliant because they tend to be rather shallow. And certainly in the summer, they tend, they tend to be not very formidable at all. So, and, that, and I include the Vistula in that. I mean, you, a, a really warm summer, you could probably wade across the Vistula. And it's, the, it's the main artery of Poland. So they're really not well served in terms of sort of natural obstacles. So the, 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 best, the best they generally can do is to sort of engage the Germans, hold them up, inflict casualties, and then carry out an ordered withdrawal, which in many cases they do do. So I did want to get away from this idea of the Poles just kind of being, I think the narrative is really just that they were inept. They rolled over. They certainly didn't roll over. Casualties of this, of this campaign, if you count in, certainly if you count in, civilian casualties it's up to about a quarter of a million it's a huge amount wow. and yet this is something we really don't know anything about it's, it's crazy and then and again to to go back to you mentioned the soviet side of the narrative that's another one that i was very keen to bring in because it routinely gets ignored it's just seen this is what what stalin's propaganda wanted you to believe was that the, the poles were already defeated 
Germans had already done the job and all the, all the Soviets are doing is coming in and kind of mopping up and it's kind of a police, police operation. Or they even described it in one way as a humanitarian operation. Certainly wasn't that, right? It's a full-blown Soviet invasion, half a million men. And in many places, they are fiercely resisted as well by the Poles. Places like Sarny, which is a sort of a bunker complex on the Eastern Front, on their Eastern Front. And they held out for three days, basically to the death at Sarny. And there's urban warfare in places like Vilnius, in Vilno and, uh, and Grodno, and in Lvov as well, the main, in the main cities in the East. So that's a whole narrative that routinely gets ignored. And it's basically that, again, we talked about the cavalry against tanks being a, a sort of a lasting victory of Goebbels's propaganda. The fact that Stalin's invasion of Poland gets ignored routinely, and you can, you can read the standard histories of World War II, you'll, you'll hardly see it mentioned. It won't even get a line. Half a million men, <laughs> it doesn't get a line. So that's a victory of Stalin's propaganda. So I wanted to try and dress those myths as far as was possible in the book. And what, what did the Western press at the time make of the Soviet invasion? Was it recorded in any way as that, or was it even mentioned? Yeah, it was mentioned. I mean, it was, there were questions asked in the House of Commons, for example, because famously the British government had given guarantee to Poland, if you, if you, if you remember, Going back to March of 1939, Chamberlain had stood up in the House of Commons and had given this guarantee to Poland that in the event of aggressive action, Britain would stand by Poland. So the question was asked well, after the Soviet invasion on the 17th of September, the question was asked in the House, well, what, why aren't we declaring war on the Soviets? Because we've just declared war on the Germans for doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. So why aren't we declaring war on the Soviets? And then the answer, and I get asked this quite a lot when I talk about it, the answer basically was that this was the golden age of secret protocols. Of course, there was the secret protocol to the Nazi-Soviet pact by which the Nazis and the Soviets basically decided which bits of Central Europe each of them were going to have. This was Hitler being very generous with territory that wasn't his to get, get Stalin on his side. And actually, the follow-up to that guarantee to Poland, which was the, the Anglo-Polish agreement, which, which was on the 25th of August, had within it a secret protocol which basically said that by the way when we talk about foreign aggression we're just talking about germany here we're not talking about anyone else so that had to be made clear to to the house of commons and and subsequently the, the rest of the uh, the rest of the world that britain would not be declaring war on the soviet union on that basis so um yeah it was talked about it was they were quite clear at the time that this was an invasion, in spite of the, the, the obfuscations of uh, Soviet propaganda. They were quite clear at the time. It was discussed what, what the British response should be. And yes, yeah, so it's only sort of subsequently, after 41 primarily, there's a lot of sympathy for the Poles in, in sort of British press and British public. Tremendous sympathy for the Poles, which only really wanes later in the war when the Americans arrive. So when the, when the Poles first arrive, they the sort of army in the West, those that managed to escape, lots of the airmen and so on managed to escape. They first set up in France, they fight in France alongside the British and the French. They then set up in a, a Polish government in exile, sets up in London at the end of the summer of 1940. And a lot of those airmen and, and fighters come with them. The, the army ends up in Scotland 
and they're very popular initially. I mean, they're sort of handsome, handsome, the airmen particularly were handsome chaps and very dashing and British ladies loved them until the Americans arrived. Then the Americans were just kind of more glamorous and had chewing gum and stockings and things like that. So they obviously, they got, they, they got preference versus the Poles, but they were, they were, there was tremendous sympathy for them at the time. And then that, as I said, mm. that sort of waned later in the war, particularly with the, the sympathy was kind of transferred to the Soviets to some extent after 1941. And the, and the Poles sort of uh, a little bit fell from fell from view, but certainly in '39, tremendous sympathy. Yeah, absolutely. And it's tragic. Again, we were talking about the fact that aren't there images, aren't there pictures of German and Soviet troops toasting each other in yeah. Poland after after dividing the spoils and yeah. literally sitting on the corpse of a great country that they just like literally just pulled apart at the seams and those horrific rates of casualties that you're talking about there this wasn't no skirmish this is this was an absolute wipeout of a great culture great it european was. culture and Absolutely. you see these images of the soviets toasting their german comrades for yeah. want of a better word meanwhile as we all know now with the benefit of hindsight the germans are plotting to do the exact same to the russians not what one less than a year later they must have known what they were about yeah. to do to their new brothers in arms it's just so horribly cynical nasty i mean the yeah. germ you know the nazis can never be described in any other glowing terms but in this particular regard you just see them for what they actually were the grins on their faces while knowing what they were about to do uh yes i would uh, this is a perfect time to plug a previous book of mine uh, called the devil's alliance which is about the nazi soviet pact and and about this period it's not just about the pact itself but it's about this period of nazi soviet german soviet collaboration between september 39 and june of 41 so 22 months of and they are they are de facto allies in that period and i would just sort of change i'd change a little bit the the description that you gave of kind of, of 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 i think both sides are being are being hugely cynical and vicious certainly to the poles we know that but actually with each other this is this is like a sort of a, a marriage made in hell between the two so the germans are getting what they want which was their invasion of poland they get the territory all of that hitler really backed himself into a corner with his diplomacy in 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 1939 so he, what stalin gives him is a way out right? Stalin gives him a way out of that by basically saying, well, okay, we'll divide up Poland between us. We want the Baltic states. So Stalin has his shopping list of territory. Stalin, we forget, is just as revisionist a power. The Soviet Union is just as much a revisionist power as Germany is at this point, right? It's no, it's no sort of wallflower neutral at all. So it wants that territory back that Russia had lost at the end of the First World War. It wants the, the post-Versailles settlement shaken up as far as is possible. It's quite happy for that to happen. It's quite happy for war to re-emerge on the continent of Europe, as long as it's not actually fighting it directly. It's quite happy for war to happen because look at the First World War, war is the mother of revolution. So there's the word in Moscow and in, in the Kremlin at the time is, well, we'll shake the tree and we'll see what happens. And it might well be that Germany and the Western powers fight themselves to a standstill, and then we can just roll in and communize the lot. Those conversations are happening. So that's the logic in Moscow behind this whole operation. So they're certainly not being innocents, being fooled by, by a sort of nefarious uh, regime in the Nazis. They're both, both as wicked as each other at this right. point. They're both trying to use each other for their own purposes, right? Yeah. But anyway, you're absolutely right in that that's there's a couple of moments where, and you can see the photos online, 
actually our listeners want to go onto YouTube, you can you can look up there's German newsreel footage of a joint German joint German Soviet parade in a place called Brest, which is now you know is now Belarus, but it was one of the big cities in eastern Poland. And there, you know, this was the wrong side of the demarcation line that the two sides had, had agreed. The Germans had sort of this is Guderian actually, had sort of skipped beyond the, the demarcation line in the fog of war. And then they had to hand this this uh, city over to the Soviets, which they did. And they had a joint victory parade effectively in the streets of Brest. And you can see this, uh, look up Brest victory parade on YouTube and you'll see it. And it's quite astonishing. This is why I, I describe it in the book. Guderian and his Soviet counterpart, a chap called Krivoshin, who, who was Jewish, incidentally, stood on a on a platform and they listened to the to the uh, uh, Soviet national anthem and the uh, and the Deutschland Deutschland über alles and the and the Wehrmacht and Red Army soldiers mingled on the on the streets on the side of the street. It's astonishing when you when you bear in mind what happens, in, like you said, two twenty two months later, when one attacks the other, and that is the defining conflict of World War Two in Europe, right? And, this, and yet, you see, you know, those images of the two basically con- consorting and celebrating their victory in, in 39 is hugely jarring. And yet those same soldiers were probably facing off against each other yeah. within how many matter of months? 22 you know, months, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, I tell you, there's been a tour de force. It's been absolutely amazing. I, I actually have a bunch of other questions. Maybe we'll do a part two. <laughs> um, you know, I, I can see you have obviously, through osmosis and sitting in your shed, absorbed all the knowledge in the, the reading list behind you. It's been truly fascinating speaking with you, Roger. I mean, I just, yeah, this is, this, this is great stuff. And there's an awful lot of new stuff in there because I know not everybody knows about it. And if we can amplify that noise as to this is the truth. Bit of okay, revisionist history, what we're probably in the age of revisionist history, but it's it's always there to be looked at from a different angle and from a yeah, no, absolutely. You know, and just as, well, just as a last word, I mean the, the, the tragedy of this is said not only in Poland, Polish you know, history in this in this chapter, in this context, had kind of been forgotten, but you know, the polls have been written out of their own narrative. So where this where the September cap- campaign was talked about at all would be talked about from the German perspective. They, you might have someone quoting Guderian's diaries. The Soviets didn't get a look in, so that wasn't part of the narrative it needed to be. Um, so there's a hell of a lot there that I wanted to revise. But crucially, I wanted to put the polls back in front centre in their own narrative, which meant getting a lot of archival first-hand accounts of people fighting on the Bzura, fighting at Vesta Plateau, wherever it is. And, and just to put them back in their own narrative, I thought that was that was a kind of a crucial part of what I wanted to do. So I, I think I've done it justice. I actually got an award last week for the book from the from uh, I was in Poland last week and got an award for it, which was, which oh, was fantastic. fantastic. That's, that's, um, yeah, so, you know, it, I think I think I have managed to uh, sort of put it put it back into the story and, and, and hopefully from now on, when you next time we see one of these single volume histories of World War Two, it's going to be nigh on impossible just to gloss over the September campaign in a couple of paragraphs. It's going to need brilliant, to great work and really important. And you actually still have so many questions we're trying to, trying to dial back on. But one of the very last questions I, I wanted to ask was, was this recognised in Poland amongst the Polish people? And clearly it has. It was work that was long, long overdue and a massive oversight. So well done on that. Thank you. Roger, we'll be following your work closely. As, as you go along, one of our one of our favourite authors, I have to say, both of us. Wonderful, thank fans. you guys. And yeah, we want to thank you once again for your 
very generous time coming on this evening. It, it's Maybe you come back on again sometime. Absolutely, anytime. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Roger. Yeah, my Thanks. pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again. There we go. What a what a wonderful interview there, as Roger just says himself, just goes into the flow. He's got so much. I just I, I wasn't expecting that. I knew he was kind of heavyweight and I knew he gets into it in his books. To be able to having written the books, to be able to go and talk at length like that, and to go off on any sort of tangent that you wanted to throw at him, he'd have been ready for it all. I think we could have keep <laughs> I think we could have kept going all yes. of us, but no, we have yeah. to respect our listeners as well. You've only got a limited time out there, listeners. Well, we hope we made the last coming up to an hour. We'll try and yeah. not make it too long for you, but we hope that you got as much out of it. As yeah, we did. Enjoyment. Yeah. Yeah. So join us next time in the Hip Historians. Derek, thanks for another great entertaining evening. Yeah. Talk All to right, you soon, guys. Take care. See you guys.